Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me wherever you are and I hope things are well. My guest this week is Muteri Wahome. She's an investment professional who's been working in the field of asset management for the last 25 years and is currently writing a book on the history of asset management in South Africa. She visited South Africa from Kenya shortly after the elections in 1994. She attended a conference on African stock exchanges and uh, moved here in 1995 to study for an MBA and uh, has settled here with her family. Um, so she's experienced the ups and downs of post-apartheid South Africa, both as a Kenyan, you know, she brings a sort of Kenyan perspective, but also as a new South African perspective. And she's had some interesting things to say about her experience of living here. She talks about the excitement in the air in 94, 95. South Africa was being reintegrated into the global economy. But uh, she says it's good to also take stock of how far we have come in a short time, how much has changed, particularly in the field of asset management, but also the work that needs to be done to transform business uh, overall in the country. Materi says business is must uh, create an environment that is conducive and supportive of transformation. She talks about creating an enabling environment uh, that looks beyond simply ticking BEE boxes and that companies need to take a genuine interest in the prospects of their employees and to develop a culture of shared experience. So, um, yeah, it was the, you know, those kinds of issues we, we, we chatted about. I hope you Enjoy now my discussion with Muteri. today. I'm glad you're feeling better. Thank you. Um, let's just start perhaps, um, let's start I think just by getting a sense of your, uh, you work kind of in the asset and asset management environment without being an asset manager. Is that a correct way to describe you? Maybe you can just, uh, I'll let you say a few words about that. Okay, so thank you very much for having me. Um, 18 months ago, I was at, uh, at one of the leading um, employee benefit firms, and they had a, an investment business, and that's where I had worked for about nine years. And, and you're right, so whilst I've not been at the core face of actually making the choices between... Um, what stocks to buy, I've been close enough in the sense that we evaluated asset managers and made decisions uh, whether to allocate um, our clients' monies to them or to advise clients on which asset managers to use. So there's a proximity to their activity that I have had through my career that has allowed me to, to have a sense of why the, 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 the industry maybe looks the way it does, um, why some are successful and others are not. Mm. And, um, and, and it's, it's certainly an industry that I think South Africans can be proud of. That's interesting. Um, because it's, it's, I suppose, sometimes seen as a bit of a, a cowboy kind of environment, um, picking funds for investment, uh, betting, I suppose, some, t some would say, on, on the stock market. But um, you say that it has been quite a successful industry in South Africa, in, in, in your experience, and we'll go a little bit into your... I think yeah. it has, um, and like 
many other parts of the world, the industry has been around um, in, in, in a form that we might be able to identify. Um, so in, in its, its you know, in a form that you might be able to look at and recognize, probably since the 60s. And just to put that in perspective, um, in China, for example, uh, the industry is probably not more than two decades old. So this is an industry that has grown mainly because there was institutional investment. Um, you had a, an a life insurance industry that had been around since the 19th century, uh, protecting lives against risks. Um, they pick, uh, they collect premiums. These premiums must be invested so that when the time comes for the life insurance company to pay a beneficiary, that there's assets to, 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 to pay over or there's a, there's, there's monies to pay over. It's an industry that that uh, grows mainly because of uh, new products like unit trusts or mutual funds that come into place in the 60s as well. And for as long as you started having individuals putting monies away, mm. putting pensions. savings, whether it was yeah. pensions, whether it was mutual savings. funds or unit trusts, mm. or putting their money away into life insurance companies, you needed those monies to be professionally managed. Mm. And that's why you'd have the beginnings of a professional asset management industry in South Africa. You know, earlier on, you, you mentioned Alan Gray. And Alan Gray must have seen this, you know, um, as an individual living in the U.S. and then um, seeing what was happening in South Africa, the growth of savings, um, the growth of wealth in, this, in the society at, at some point, and seeing the opportunity to set up an asset management firm where they could judiciously and as a fiduciary take in savings, invest them to create wealth. You um, you told me when we, we first spoke a couple of weeks back, you, you're Kenyan uh, by birth. Yes. Um, from Nairobi, and we swapped a couple of Nairobi stories. Mm -hmm. um, you, you told me you came here, was it in 1994 for some conference? What, what was, what, 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 did, what were you doing in 1994? So in 1994, I was a young girl who just recently completed a BCom degree at the University of Nairobi. And one day I was working for a Lonro company in, in Nairobi. Lonro? Yes. Uh, mining? Yes. Yeah. Well, Lonro was a conglomerate and oh they okay. had many businesses. I, I but one of, the, one of the businesses that, that they had was an insurance broking business. Okay. So I worked in the insurance broking business of Lonro. And... Uh, I had studied uh, a Bachelor of Commerce, um, uh, specializing in insurance. But as a, a BCom student, you get to hear about investments and markets. And although my family, nobody was a businessman or really knew much about business, having come from um, you know, relatives who are more either teachers or lawyers. Okay. When, when I was accepted to, to do Bachelor of Commerce, nobody really knew what that was <laughs> in our family. <laughs> but the one thing that uh, my father did is he figured, well, if you're going into the world of money, you might as well own some shares. And that's perhaps what turned, um, changed my life in the sense that he got me 500 shares of Barclays, which was a listed company. And... Because I had 500 shares of Barclays, it now made me look at the newspaper every day to <sighs> see how my shares were doing. I know that one. And I've been uh, there. You, you're looking at your shares every day and you recognize that, <laughs> wow, the th shares, there's value. The value goes up. And it was... And so goes down. And goes down. <laughs> but in those days, you know, the, the market was, was, was really going mostly up. Hmm. And... Um, 
so I'm, I'm really excited about that. And any time I had a little bit of money, it became something that I wanted to, to do, to buy a few shares. And at the time, there were many new listings of companies coming into the Nairobi Stock Exchange. Mm. So here I am. I'm a young girl working in a, a chancery insurance brokers was the name of the company. And I saw an advert in one of the local pr uh, business papers, and it said the Africa Stock Exchange Association conference was to be held in Johannesburg. It was the inaugural conference. And I look at that, sure. and in my mind, I think, I have to go. Yeah. So, you know, here I am. I, I couldn't possibly ask my parents to, to pay for this. Um, I had many siblings. Um, I couldn't ask my employer to pay for this because it had nothing really to, to do, do with what, what I was doing. But I had a few shares that over time I had been buying and I was able to sell a few shares and find my way to <laughs> South Africa for the Africa Stock Exchange Association Conference. Yeah. And that's how I first came to South Africa. Yeah. It's an exciting time because all I knew as a young Kenyan girl was the change had come to South Africa. We had watched Mandela the previous year or, or earlier on, because um, this is 94. So we had watched him a few years before mm. in 1990 walk out of yeah. you know, prison. What a day. It's, a, it's, it's one of those days that you, you know exactly where you were. Hmm. At least I know exactly where yeah. I was. And we knew that South Africa was changing. And we had seen on television those long queues as people stood in the sun patiently to mm. vote for for a new democratic government. And um, so it's an exciting time. And that's really the first time I came to South Africa. Mm. And it was it was a wonderful experience. I there's a whole story that we, we wouldn't necessarily go into about that particular trip. But it was a trip where I got to meet many people, one of whom was a gentleman who gave me my first opportunity to work in South Africa after okay. I had finished my studies. And his name was Paul Barnard. And he was one of the founders of a company called Barnard Jacobs Millet. And, and so, uh, you know, that's my first interaction with South Africa. Mm. I, I, I come to the conference. It's a conference where there's lots of stockbrokers, big insurance companies, big institutional investors. And, and you know, I can't believe this. It's wonderful to see such, such, I guess, the world of finance, the one, yeah. the world of money, and right there, right there. And I suppose, I mean, it is. It does say something right there, does it not? That I mean, you say this was the first conference of its type, and it's taking place what within six months of the first democratic election. So clearly, I mean, everyone had been champing at the bit to get into South Africa, right? Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting time. You know, before we s started mapping out the potential direction of this conversation, you were asking me about the economy. But perhaps the difference, one of the differences then, is that although there's still not complete certainty what a new South Africa, a new government, a new a new dispensation would look like. There is a real excitement that this change in the air that yeah. brings with it possibilities. Mm. So in a world of finance, there's deregulation happening. Um, South African investors are allowed for the first time to invest small amounts overseas because in 1994, you could not invest overseas. There were exchange controls. So they're, they're beginning to loosen exchange mm. controls. Mm. And the whole sanctions and the whole politics of doing business in South Africa. I mean, South Africa was a dirty word, was it not? It was, perhaps. But, and, but it's an interesting idea about South Africa being a dirty word. And yes, uh, you know, there's diplomatic and economic sanctions. So what's happening is the beginning of the reintegration of South Africa right, into yeah. the world of nations. Yeah. So it's an exciting and yeah. wonderful, thrilling time. And I suppose in that sort of, in the investor environment sentiment is also such an important thing i think or some one reads about that you know what's investor confidence business sentiment and i suppose there was that sort of crackle of of just as you say positivity in the air you know the interesting thing i think about positivity 
the way I see it is that there are always people who will have a glass half full view of life and there are those who will have a glass half empty kind of uh, uh, worldview. But there are people looking at South Africa and saying, There's a, this is a land of opportunity. If they deregulate their economy, if they liberalize, uh, if they deregulate the, 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 uh, you know, the financial sector, if they liberalize their industry, if they remove protectionism, and there was a lot of protectionism during apartheid, that this could possibly bring with it opportunity. On the other hand, you have South African firms who have never been able to invest anywhere else mm. and, and therefore have had businesses that, you know, if you think of Anglo-American at the time, you know, they're not only a miner, but they own a life insurance company, they own a, uh, a bank, they own a retailer mm. in the form of... Proper conglomerate. It was a proper so. conglomerate. So for firms like that, they now have the opportunity for the first time to look for, to diversify their businesses. Now, you know, there could be an argument, what was their intention? Were they actually just trying to externalize some of their investments? Mm. Or were they trying to diversify? Were they looking for lower cost of capital? But whatever it is, you have money flowing out, but you also have money coming in. Mm. As people around the world are saying, this is a new market that presents with its opportunities as the market starts to change mm. and be more open to, to, to investors. So it's a really interesting time in that sense. Yeah. And um, you kind of then never went home. Well... So I come. Uh, I, I went. We went home to pack uh, your uh, bags uh, to come after back. After the conference, I did go home. Uh, but what I had also done at about the same time is I I wanted to do my masters. I wanted to do my MBA. Oh wow! Okay. So I had um, when I was here, I got a few names, and I went home and I I applied to to Wits Business School and to UCT, and I was accepted at Wits Business School. So in 1995, I came to do my MBA at WITS. Okay. So uh, I do my MBA at WITS, and um, it's, it's a great experience. Geez, you're quite young then still. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I always figured at that time that if I, you know, there were, there were probably two ways to kind of get ahead in life. You know, you could join a company and work your way up through the corporate ladder, but my, my idea was to perhaps do an MBA and learn the basics, you know, learn how companies work and then use that as an edge to, to get, because, you know, you can do it the, the sort of long way and corporate ladder type things mm. and I'd eventually learn about how a business operates or maybe I go and study and see. You felt that would give you a... I felt an advantage. I felt that it would just open up my mind and give me a better sense of how mm. businesses work and 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 it was a wonderful experience. Mm. So I I studied and um I I it was a two year kind of course. I Yeah, and you're working at the time? No, I wasn't, but okay. um but whenever I had a a, a break, uh, I I would call Paul Barnard and of Barnard Jacobs Millet and if they had any work for you know, a student to do help around the office. You mm. know, I gladly went and, and did that kind of thing. So that's that's what I would do. And so what was your first sort of... Um, because, I mean, I've, I've had friends who've, who've done NBAs and they've been normally working. So I suppose, in a sense, that was quite nice that you had that time to just devote purely to your studies because I understand it's quite an intense... Uh, Degree. It is an intense degree, and there's a lot that they cram into it mm. to give you a, a bird's eye view of the world of work, the world of business, um, so that when you go into your next career or you, you go back after, you know, uh, because you have a mix of type of students who go into this. There are those mm. who are taking a career break, and there were those like me who at the time hadn't worked 
for uh, a very long time. You weren't quite sure, in fact. Yes, yeah, so I, I had only worked for about one or two years, and, and then I decided to do my MBA. So the I didn't have the depth of experience that you might have had with some of my other uh, colleagues, right. uh, or, or at least some of my other peers in, in the classroom. But it's it's a, an opportunity to learn from others because sure. you do a lot of group work. Yes, and there's it, lots of little different levels of experience exactly. and perspectives. So, 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 so it's it's really a very rich um, uh, uh, opportunity to learn and to grow. Mm. But I, I, I complete when I completed my MBA, I then uh, was fortunate to get an opportunity at. Uh, Barnard Jacobs Millet as, a, as an analyst, so I joined as, a, as an insurance sector analyst. And, and you know, you, you start working as a young person, and um, I, I met a young man, and I got married, and you just never go back. <laughs> <laughs> you, you find a new track. <laughs> yeah. That was really the, the, the story. Yeah, that's it. Is quite um, it is quite uh, strange when I when I look at my own experience and and also the experience of of a number of people that I've that I've spoken to that that life can kind of just go in directions that you never imagined or anticipated. Um, just through a, a certain, just a, a moment of circumstance that will change you forever. Absolutely. I, I often feel that not enough credit is given to the role of luck and, mm. and circumstance in our lives. Um, I have recently been doing, working on a project where I was trying to write the story of... Uh, of the asset management industry, the, the 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 story of institutional investors and asset management industry in South Africa, and it's been a it's a long uh, but very rewarding journey. And is this what you you're engaged in now? That's what you I've been doing. So writing a book. I I've been writing a book, so now I have I'm looking for a publisher. So that's what I've been working on. Oh wow! On. Okay. But. Um, in my interviews with many people who were at the industry, you know, from the pioneers in the industry to to my contemporaries, what I always found fascinating when I asked them about uh, their experience in the asset management industry was, you know, the element of luck because it's you meet someone who tells you there's a job at a place you really don't have any idea what it's about, but you join and it changes your life. Mm. So uh, I, I, I think it makes life exciting. Yeah. The idea that it's not all pre preordained or mapped out. Sure. And um, yes, so I, I come uh, because I see an advert to, to, yeah. to a conference. Yeah. I meet various people. I come back to study the people you meet are helpful in connecting you with one or two opportunities and, yeah. and the rest is history. Yeah. How do you reflect now, I mean, particularly now in writing this book, you're obviously sort of tracking back to, to, to when you sort of first... So I'll, I'll sort of post apartheid, the 21st, 25 years of our democracy, mm -hmm. And you were talking about that sort of buzz of excitement that was in the air, and I mean, we all felt that in in various different ways. How do you sort of s assess where we are now as a country to that excitement? Then, I mean, obviously, we are living through some some tough times. I mean, the global economy is 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 part of the problem, but also uh, issues around. Dare I say corruption or just sort of lack of, of competence at, at, at various levels, particularly in government and state bureaucracy. Um, how do you, so, uh, and uh, despite all of that, I mean, things have changed massively in this country. I mean, it, there's no question about it. Mm. Uh, people are, are, are free. Mm. Um, there has been, you know, delivery to a certain degree in terms of, you know, just basic uh, 
infrastructure, water, electricity, things like that. So, of course, um, and, and the younger generation are growing up in a completely different country to, I suppose, South African, black South Africans of, of even your, your age. But how do you sort of assess where we are now in, in that context? Mm. I think one of the, the best things about having a context and a historical context is that you're able to, to, to look at a situation and say, well, it's tough, but has it been tougher? And in a, you know, from an economic perspective, um, looking at the 80s in particular in South Africa, that was a very difficult time for South Africa on so many levels. And I guess at a certain level, I look at that time and I see a country that overcame where there was a political will to change and make something great. And I know that no matter how hard a situation is or as, or as a country we find ourselves in, that there's always opportunity to change. You can change things. Mm. And um, wh when I think of, of South Africa and I think of um, when I first came in 1994, if I went to a room, I was probably... I'd stick out like a sore thumb mm. because historically someone like me had no business being in a room where th discussions were held about business or at that kind of level. I'm a bit of a curiosity at that time, mm. but today I'm not. Mm. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good thing that that, you know, the right to vote, that, that agency that a citizenry can have is now not something that is contested. That is a good thing. I think it is a good thing that it, when I look at uh, the research that I've been doing, in 1994, you have Alan Gray, who has been around as a firm for two decades. Investec is barely a year old, Investec Asset Management. <laughs> Coronation Fund Managers does not exist. Prudential Portfolio Managers does not exist. These are companies that barely have a three-year track record to offer uh, an institutional an investor. investor. Today, these are companies that when you look at the league tables that measure companies, that rank companies by size, you will find these companies on those global league tables. That has happened in the last quarter century. So uh, there have been shifts that sometimes we forget. There have been shifts that have been for the better and and I think it's important that we pause and, and take stock so that we, 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 it gives us some sort of encouragement about a future that we can create to improve this country. So is it tough time in South Africa? By no means it is. Um, but can we see the seeds or the green shoots, uh, yes. You know, there's a, there's a government that seems committed to, 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 you know, stopping the rot. Is it easy to do? No. Um, but is there a will? There is. So in some senses, when I, when I, as a, as a new South African, as you called me <laughs> earlier, and it's, a, it's an interesting term, but as a new South African, I, I, I look at South Africa and I say, this is the most sophisticated economy on the continent. 
It's not the largest economy, but there are such capabilities in this country. You have markets that work. You have institutions that have been around for centuries. If you think of uh, Old Mutual, Old Mutual was founded in 1845. Sunlum um, celebrated a centenary last year. You have a lot you have a lot, you have a strong foundation on which to build and, and, and pick yourself up. And that's something to be grateful for. Um, you mentioned the fact that you're no longer a kind of anomaly or curiosity mm -hmm. uh, in boardrooms or conferences or meetings in general and in within the sort of financial services community. Mm -hmm. But there still is a feeling that you know the economy of this country or even the management level the o not only the ownership but the sort of management is still very white male mm -hmm. um and i'm just wondering you know where wh wh when that shift is going to <laughs> to happen um i mean I even you know i was reading recently the association of Black security and investment professional professionals are sort of calling for a bigger slice of the investment pie, mainly, as I understood it, within the sort of pension kind of savings sector, not the retail uh, investment sector. But mm. still, there's th there's concern that, that 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 shift hasn't. Whatever we're talking about now in terms of the massive changes that have taken place, mm -hmm. you might call that lack of transformation a fundamental non-change, mm -hmm. if that's uh, even a term, I don't know. Mm -hmm. How do you... So, uh, again, I go back to context. So in 1994, um, if you walk into the room, an investment professional is likely to be white and male. Um, when I look at historical documents, and in this regard, Alexander Forbes is, is, a, uh, is a wonderful repository of institutional memory because they had documents and surveys that were done way back from the 80s. And if you look at those documents where the participants are asked who are some of the key investment professionals in your businesses, and the participants actually would give um, the survey, um, you know, the survey author that is Alexander Forbes, the details of these individuals who are key investment professionals. In 1994, there are only three black investment professionals. Um, and they're that are mentioned? In, in, in the books. Yeah. So there's Shams Pather. He's the chairperson of Carnation Fund Managers today. There's Adam Ibrahim. He's the founder of Oasis Asset Management Company, uh, a well-established company today. Um, and there's Asif Mohammed, who has built a, 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 a firm and that's growing um, called Aon. So those are three individuals in 1994. If you look at the surveys in 1994, you'll pick those three individuals. If you look at women, Again, there's hardly any women in 1994, but there are three that are mentioned. There's Gail Daniels today, then Gail Boone. There's Gigi Van Sale, who's at Allen Gregg. Gail is at Investec. And there's Annette Hearn, who's at Seifritz. So that's 1994. So if we... Fast forward to 2019, I can tell you now, if you get the same survey, there are a lot more uh, black investment professionals. This is a period of about 25 years. So you're looking at potentially just three, four generations mm. of black investment professionals in a, in, a, in a country that has a very long heritage of financial services businesses, because we just mentioned all mutual that starts in 1845, for example. So the tradition of a financial services sector has long roots. 
your earliest pension funds in South Africa, the earliest recorded one, according to Rosemary Hunter in her book, was in 1882 in the Transvaal. In 1956, South Africa passes the first pension dedicated piece of legislation that covers pension funds. Um, and it's, it's, you know, according to some accounts, it was the first dedicated piece of pension fund legislation that you found anywhere in the world. Because at that time, although there were pensions, they were created uh, through the laws of trust as opposed to a dedicated piece of legislation. So the, the point I'm making is that are there perhaps enough black professionals at, in senior roles? There might be a case to say that they could be more. But the point I want to make is that this is 25 years when we've had this opportunity to build the feedstock. Mm. It's not a long time, even as we uh, hope to see change. And, and, and there is change. So we shouldn't belittle the change that has taken place. Um, and, and, and there are certain things that can only change with time and will. So, you know, to have the issue of diversity and inclusion is important. And you see certainly in boardrooms that I sometimes sit in or attend meetings, this is not something that is no longer in people's consciousness. This is something that's being talked about. But I think it's not always enough to talk about diversity and inclusion. The entities, the institutions themselves, also need to change to create an enabling environment to promote this transformation. Because it's not just about seeing people of different race groups. It's about having an environment that allows them to thrive mm. and flourish. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what has your personal experience been when it comes to kind of uh, prejudice uh, against you both as a, as a woman and as a person of color um, in this highly sort of structured and, and, dare I say, conservative and still predominantly white-dominated, male-dominated environment? Yeah. So, you know, you will encounter it. Um, I remember a time when I was a young analyst and going into a meeting, it was after a, a, a presentation to analysts by a company and you know we were talking after the, the presentation and fraternizing and asking management questions and, and somebody comes to me, one of the management of the, the c in the company and comes to me and asks me to give him a drink, to get him a drink. <laughs> <laughs> What so a classic. <laughs> so I guess if I had to, you know, it's one of those things that always sticks in my mind because it was so, I was so taken aback. But, you know, if I had to give you a, a very basic and example that's neither here nor there, that's mm. some of the things that you had to encounter, mm. you know. Or you go into a room and you, you might have a, a white colleague, but you're the senior in, in, the, in the relationship, but... Everyone's talking to him. Everyone's talking to him, not mm. to you. But so, so, so there is that, but, you know, maybe it's, a, it's the condition of society. I, I'm sure it has changed. You know, like I said, you know, as we get more and more people of color in the room, it is now not a surprise that the expert in the room might not necessarily always be a white person. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, and this is not necessarily a South African condition. I, I was reading an article recently, maybe not so recently, about a year ago in the New York Times where someone was talking about this very issue, diversity, uh, and um, and they, they, it was a, a researcher, so she asks the room, to draw, uh, imagine the boss, draw what the boss looks like. And everybody always, you know, whenever she did this experiment when she was talking to the crowd, the pictures that people drew were of a man. Hmm. It was, the boss was always a man. 
possibly white as well, but the boss was always a man. So the idea of a, a black investment professional in a society like this, even when you're talking to a pension fund trustee, it's, it's not a common one. Mm. When I've just told you that your key investment professionals, there are only three in 1994. So if, if they walk into a room and say, I'm going to now be presenting to you about the investments, you're likely to see a trustee who's thinking, mm, yes, yes, are you sure? Yeah. But I'm so sure that will change. Yeah. And that has changed. Yeah. It's, you talked about that sort of enabling environment. I think that's an important sort of component of all of this, you know, despite all the legislation and, and transformation we've experienced in business and education, et cetera, et cetera, it is that actual workspace, I think, that still needs a nudge somehow that, that a lot of the young uh, black professionals I've spoken to sort of still experience the workplace as a place of That's contestation. Not yeah, It's not comfortable. Mm. The organizations have not changed to to make them feel this is a place they belong. Um, uh, uh, there was a wonderful article I read last week um, because Yale University was celebrating the first class of women into the university. This is in the US. And I'm always amazed by stories like this because to think that an August institution like that has only had women students or students in the last 50 years it it is it, it that recent yes it blows your mind yeah and when you read the article because it's based on a book where they interviewed the first cohort of students that were female to join Yale um, the big deal is that the this is an institution saying okay we want diversity so let's have women but does not do anything whatsoever to make the institution comfortable for women mm. students. Mm. So I think not dissimilarly, when I think of the workplace, there has to it's it's not enough to just talk in numbers so that you can tick that box, so that you can get those points, so that you can get that level B level. You, you, these institutions need to look and say, what do we need to do to change these environments, to make these places that people want to work in? And what is that then? Wh how does that process look for you, do you think? Is it about a change of leadership at the top? Is it about more mentoring? Is it about... Um, yeah, having that sort of role model. I think it's a whole host of things. Mm. Um, mentors, sponsors in the workplace, mm. you know, people who will, in the room when important conversations are being had, when people are looking for opportunities to, to you know, pieces of work to 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 allocate responsibility. That there are people in the room saying, you know what, Sipo can do that. Uh, let's let's let him try that. Or, or mm. you know, so so that's sponsorship. So it's it's not just about being a mentor. It's about also having people in the room who think about you and the opportunities to make your to, to give you the kind of experience that helps uh, an individual become a well-rounded individual. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's an organization that genuinely takes an interest in the people who work there, that tries to create shared experiences for the people who yeah. work there. Um, you know, many times, especially in hard times like these, when there's, you know, you're, you're trying to balance the books and the economy is not growing and you're just trying to hold it together, companies are tempted to cut back on things that, y you, you know, things that help you with team building, you know, mm. taking your team out to, 
to do 10-pin bowling because yeah, that is... that's seen as an extra expense, not an investment in your people and your company. Exactly, yeah. but y if you want companies and some of these spaces to be spaces that are, 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 are great places to work that allow for creativity, um, you need to create shared experiences so that people are able to interact well together. So it, it, it's, it's something that needs to be deliberate, that needs mm. to be intentional. Um, it's, it's and not just a tick, B-E-E-E, -E -E tick box. Exactly. It's mm. not just about the arithmetic of the, you know, the numbers. Mm. There has to be more. And it's, it's, if it's your, your female staff, is there anything that you can do to so that you don't keep losing female staff or skills just because they have other responsibilities? Um, are there ways that you can change things to make sure that you don't completely lose potentially half your workforce because at different times they might have to, to, to they have family responsibilities? Mm. So I think it, it calls for a certainly more intentional way of thinking of creating a space that allows for creativity and um, and innovation. I'm just um, so I want to, if I may, just talk a little bit more about uh, sort of investment environment, general global economic um, factors. Um, South Africa is now, or has been for uh, some time, a member of the BRICS, or is a BRIC. I don't know how I say that. Um, how? What? What? What is the kind of thinking behind? I suppose a getting South Africa into that that organisation, and b what do you see as kind of the long term benefits of that relationship? Because, I mean, right now it seems that we very much are still the ugly duckling of that whole group just in terms of our size, impact, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So it's, it's an interesting question, and I, I'll give you a sense of, you know, from a, a, a you know, as, as, as someone who kind of likes to observe these things, and, and why would South Africa join a, a grouping of countries like this? And, and I think... At the time, South Africa was certainly the largest economy in Africa. The largest economy and the most sophisticated economy in Africa. So, you know, it was certainly a good club to join. And if you were looking for uh, a, a candidate from the African continent, I think South Africa would have been, been the obvious cho mm. choice. Having said that, um, when one looks at some of the demographics of the other you know other entities you, you know whether you look at china or india those are countries with populations that are huge you know in excess of, of a billion, billion. Um, the, the economies are large but south africa i guess added a different flavor in that it was uh, a participant from the african continent um it, it, like i you know, you've asked me about asset management. And there, again, if you look at South Africa uh, from an asset management industry, you know, it can certainly stand up to be counted. Um, there's a wonderful survey that the Pensions and Investment and Willis Towers Watson consulting firm do, which looks at the top 500 asset managers in the world. And when you look at the South African participation, bearing in mind that South Africa is a, an economy that's probably just less, less than 1% in terms of GDP, global GDP, and the other four countries represent almost a quarter of the global GDP. So if you, I suppose if you, tilted much by China in that sort exactly, of context. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, uh, but nevertheless, when you, when you look at it that way, you see a country that has... in typically in the last little while when i've last looked at these these surveys you'd find between 8 to 10 south african asset managers in that global ranking there were 
uh, a few Chinese ones, and the, you know the Chinese market is is uh, for savings and investment is seen as one of the 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 biggest um, opportunities in the for the global industry. Um, uh, there were a few Indian ones, maybe about eight or so. There were no Russian ones. Hmm. And there were probably also about seven or eight Brazilian ones. So uh, the point I want to make is that despite coming from a relatively small economy, that heritage in financial services where you've had an insurance industry that can be traced back to the 19th century, you've had pension fund industry that has had a regulatory framework that's been around for almost uh, 70 years, that kind of institutional context, that political uh, framework that creates an enabling economic environment has held South Africa in good stead so that although it may not have the kind of heft when you look at GDP or you look at population, when you look at a savings industry and the ability to, uh, of the financial sector, you, you, you notice that um, in asset management, certainly um, South Africa can stand up to be counted mm. amongst the BRICS. And I think that's a really special thing to, or something to be proud of. Mm. How then has that relationship or um, how has yeah, uh, the South African membership of the BRICS been leveraged by South Africa towards those Brazil, India, China, Russia in terms of trade and investment? Uh, on the one hand, and also how have, say, subcontinental economies tried to use that relationship to spring uh, as a springboard to to grow their economies? Mm. Does does that make sense? It's a good question, but not really one uh, that I that's that I can wax lyrically about uh, in the kind of way that you might. Uh, want the conversation to go. But the one thing that for me I think is important is that South Africa is at the table when meaningful conversations are being had, whether it's in the G20, where South mm. Africa is also a member, or whether it's yeah. in the BRICS uh, context. You know, We're sitting at the high table, as we, it were. Exactly. And, and I think that's a really important um, thing for, mm. for our nation, and as a representative of of uh, a young and hopefully um, amazing continent going forward, mm. um, just to I mean, just maybe just get some personal sort of perspective um, from you then on the continent um, and your hopes uh, going forward, because I mean it is. Still, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, you know, you hear about, you know, the young populations and the vibrant economies, but still seems to be so hobbled by, I don't know, I suppose it's, it's historical colonial past to one extent, but also just these kinds of issues we face here in terms of the political class not really delivering. And, and in fact not making any effort in a way to, to improve the lives of its citizens. And I'm just, I suppose, concerned that that inertia is actually going to create the environment for some kind of political disruption that is going to be bad for everyone. Mm. So uh, I, I want to, to also look at history to, to, to reflect on the question because um, on man, in many surveys, whether it's by the World Bank and others of that ilk, w when you reflect about the continent, um, there has been progress. So whether you look at political stability, um, freedom of the press, 
there, there are certainly, uh, you, you know, if you compare 2019 to 1989, for example, there, there's been definite positive shifts. That across the uh, across uh, the across, subcontinent. Uh, uh, across the subcontinent, you know, there are more, more countries that have democratic elections. Um, that was not a feature in the eighties. Uh, so, so there there there's certainly some um, bright spots um, in in different parts of of the continent that we we must always acknowledge. I'm one of those glass half full <laughs> kind of individuals. If you haven't <laughs> noticed, I kind that. of picked that up. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to but, see here. Yeah, but but. Uh, but so, so that is definitely um, something that we can say. There have been shifts. Uh, you know, whether you look at health, uh, you know, I was listening to a podcast yesterday where somebody was talking about the, the impact of penicillin to, to, to mm. across the globe, you know, because with that, it, it had a dramatic impact on life expectancy and things like that. So I, I look at things like health, I look at education. More countries are investing a lot more in education. So there's certainly an awareness of the kind of things that need to be done. There might be problems around the execution and sometimes the will to, to, to get things done. But it's, it's no longer a contested issue that you, you need an educated population. It's no longer a contested issue that technology can be used to leapfrog an economy or to leapfrog uh, and... and, and, and bring about innovation. You just have to look at what the impact of Mpesa in Kenya has mm. had. Um, so so there, there are some good things. But having said that, there are some troubling things too, where, you know, when you look at some of the young people dying as they try and swim to Europe, for example, yeah. or uh, take enormous risks because they're looking for just a break, they're just looking for an opportunity, that is a failure of leadership, that you have young people walking the continent just to get to Libya or one of these mm. places so they can try and get into a dinghy to go into Europe. That, for me, is, is a very problematic because it shows that the leaders are not doing what they need to be doing to, to, to tap into this this youthful population and, and and you know a youthful population is a form of certainty wealth and currency for these countries if you compare it to places like japan and germany where you know those populations are not growing mm. um what are those populations going to do you know if you look forward what does it mean for those societies a youthful population well channeled you know if you can channel that youthful population Make sure that there are opportunities and jobs for, for, for these young people or certainly opportunities for entrepreneurship. That is a, a resource potentially for our continent that you cannot uh, underestimate if it, is, if it is well cultivated. So am I hopeful? I am because I'm just that kind of individual. But I do know that from a, the, the political classes... And also the citizenry have a responsibility to, to elect the people who can, can bring that change and improve the, the condition for the, 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 con the societal condition um, that can create an enabling environment for commerce. Um, and, and I think with the right building blocks, and everybody taking their responsibility seriously, whether it is to elect the right officials and for the officials to realize that the job that they have is one that is selfless, where mm. they're there for... To serve. To serve. Then I think that, that you know, this can definitely be a, a continent that can stand up to be counted. Materi, on that positive note... I thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Well, she's certainly a glass half full kind of person. Um, just a very calm and professional sort of approach to things. I've been kind of despairing 
of this country recently and you know it's good to just get some outside perspective context to events um, she's certainly experienced dramatic change in her work environment and at the same time accepts that much more needs to be done to build sort of a black business professional cohort uh, in this country I do like the idea of sponsorship in the workplace uh, as a way to to drive this transformation. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. Please subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a rating or comment. It helps spread the word about the podcast. You can also find Voices from SA on Spotify, Deezer, Radio Public, or Indeed, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. Cheers.